Pontypridd, said, I come from South Wales, over on the valley, little town called Pontypridd. But my paternal grandparents lived in Surrey. That is quite a trek, a long car journey. And sometimes we would go and visit them. And it took forever <laughs> to get there. And at that point, there were two main ways of getting there. One, you could drive around the top of Gloucester and down into Surrey. I see some nods of people who know the trek. Or, bearing in mind that the first Seven Bridge was under construction, you could go to the site of construction and take a car ferry across the River Seven and then continue. It saved 88 miles of the journey. So on one occasion, we uh, went to go and visit the grandparents, and my dad says, we're going on the car ferry. Big adventure. As we are going up the ramp onto the ferry, an official told my father to wind down his window. He leans in and said, oh, I have to tell you, the Welsh nationalists have put a bomb threat on the bridge at 10 o'clock. Okay, what time do you think we were going <laughs> under the bridge? You got it? 10 o'clock. So there we were in the car with my brother and myself and my parents. And my mother had insisted that we all take off our socks and shoes because we could swim better. You can imagine that on that journey, I was very glad to ask the immortal four-word question of anyone on a long car journey. Are we there yet? Yes? And the inevitable answer was no. Well, how long? What are we going to do till we get there? It usually involved endless singing of songs and lots of boiled sweets, as I recall. There were other long car journeys in my youth. Um, quite a few of them involved going to summer Bible conferences. I really enjoyed them. And I do recall several renowned Bible preachers would come with great charts. And when I say charts, they almost would have filled about two-thirds high of the back wall of diagrams and plans about the second coming when it was going to happen, what was going to happen. And I was enthralled by these explanations. But it didn't take many years for me to discover that many groups had um, different views about this. They had almost opposing ideas. It won't take you long in Scripture to realize that those kind of arguments are not left in the 1960s. They were going on in the time of Jesus, in our chapter on Luke 21. Jesus had been in the temple answering questions from both Jewish leaders and his own disciples. So he's trying to teach them. And the setup of the chapter opens with the famous account of a lady who did this. Did you hear that? Can you imagine if you've got a temple full of people? Would you have heard that? 
unlikely. But Jesus did. He commented to his disciples how her generosity of heart to give from a position of poverty was of far more value than the ostentatiousness of others who gave just to show their wealth. Great teaching point for Jesus. What do his disciples do with it? Ignored it. In fact, they started remarking on how beautiful the temple was. Herod's temple, the second great temple of the Jews. Adorned with beautiful stones and all these gifts dedicated to God. Jesus pulls them up on it. And he tells them the most, most extraordinary thing. Verse 6 of Luke 21. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. That's a prophetic declaration which happened in AD 70, about 40 years before this. Sorry, 40 years after when Jesus was speaking. Now, remember, I told you the disciples had been listening, but who else had been listening? The Pharisees, leaders of the Jewish law. They placed huge importance on outward obedience to the law of Moses. Everything had to be done to be perfect, and they revered the temple, regarding it as the high point of the Jewish faith. When Herod had come to power, it had sort of gone out of favor a bit, but Herod did a massive refurbishment on it, and it was the huge glory, and they were so, so proud of it. They wanted to promulgate their Jewish faith using the building as a showcase to prove that they were God's special people. The greater the ornamentation, the greater the status they felt they had. They wanted to cherish that status and increase our influence. But what has Jesus just said? Not one stone left on another? It seems like he wants to pull it down. Now, I think what he wanted to do was pull down what the temple had come to mean. They were so focused on the building, they had lost their focus on the worship. It must have felt like two tribes going to war. Jesus wants to tear it down. They want to build it up. So he starts to talk to them about things that are going to happen. What the future held for his hearers and what we can now read that it might mean for us. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 8 and 9, Jesus says to his disciples, remember that, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am here, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. It's easy to miss that distinction, but I think it's important. Jesus makes a distinction between the things that must happen first 
and then the end. Now, when I read this in the message, it became really clear to me. It says, Jesus said, watch out for doomsday deceivers. Many leaders are going to show up with forged identities claiming, I'm the one, or the end is near. Don't fall for any of that. When you hear of wars and uprisings, keep your head and don't panic. This is routine history and no sign of the end. Routine history. Now, I'm not going to go down the line of trying to interpret biblical prophecy as indicators of end times. It is a little complicated, and I'm not an expert. So you can rest. But I do want to draw your attention this morning to this distinction between signs of the times and signs of the end. Signs of the times, things like wars and revolutions, are nothing new. They happen in all generations, from Jesus' time, before Jesus' time, and right up to now. If we're on this car journey, let's pull into a lay-by for a minute. I am never sure if we are now seeing vast increases in such things or whether we now have the technology to hear about them more often. We also now get graphic video footage of what's happening. Jesus warned here against doomsday deceivers who seem to actually be cropping up more and more in our generations. In America, they call them doomsday preppers. Do you know, I just licked my finger to turn a Kindle. Oh, I don't, I, sorry about that. Doomsday preppers are, quote, preparing for doomsday, whether it's caused by a natural disaster, a financial collapse, or a nuclear winter, and their plan is to outlast and outlive any apocalyptic scenario. I'm sure you may have seen some things about these people. They often stockpile food, clothing, and sometimes weapons to protect themselves. And this is the really important bit of what I'm trying to say here. Regardless of what happens to anyone else, as they get access to more and more information, they interpret it as a sign of the end and then get really frustrated that people don't listen to them. I'm afraid it's a ripe breeding ground for conspiracy theorists. But they want to make sure, I'm okay, Jack. No concept of others. So let's, out of the lay-by, back on the journey. Jesus did not want to leave his disciples unprepared for what would be difficult years ahead. He warned them about three things. False messiahs, natural disasters, and persecution. Did those things come? Oh, yes. And they continue to come to our day. But these would still be signs of the times, not of the end. Now, if you looked on it at the, on a surface level, it does seem a gloomy picture false messiahs, natural disasters, and persecutions. And we are becoming more and more aware of that. But it should not be a cause for panic 
on our part. This is the routine history that we were talking about earlier. So are we there yet? Are we at the point where a time will come when, quote, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory? Verse 27. Well, we're still in the room. So he clearly hasn't come yet. But I happen to think it's very soon. When I was growing up in the 1960s, we used to sing, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Yes, some of you are old enough and gracious enough with my voice to remember it. I think that more than ever now. It's soon. But we are still here. We're right at the start of our lovely Advent season, a reflection on the first time Jesus came to earth. Jesus assured his disciples that the second coming was very real, and when he came, they could look forward to a reign of justice and peace. For us now, rather than being terrified of what's happening in our world, we could and should be confident as we await Christ's return to bring that justice and restoration. He assured his disciples then, and he assures us now, he would be with us, protect us, and make his kingdom known through them. Yes? But if we're not there yet, like the children in the back seat, do we start to pout and nag and actually tell Jesus, can you get a move on? Revelation 20, 21, the last but one verse of the scriptures says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you know, I often used to pray that prayer just before major exams. <laughs> now, don't tell me I'm the only one. How many times have you prayed, Lord, if you're going to come, can you come before 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? It's a get-out prayer. Don't let me have to go through with this. Like Amanda read in our, our reading, just pray that you might be released. Don't let me go through with this. But I wonder sometimes if we emotionally become a bit like those doomsday preppers. I'm okay, Lord. I thank you that I'm saved. But it's not just about us, is it? In my just-before-exam days, I was actually asking God to come immediately on my terms and take me away, forgetting everyone around me in great need. How much more should we take the message Jesus was trying to instill in the two coins to demonstrate his kingdom values. Bearing in mind, he's got his disciples and the Pharisees listening to him. And rather than get caught up with endless theological arguments, which I think are rarely helpful, our time would be much better served in bringing kingdom 
values to every aspect of our lives. So if the second coming that Jesus was talking about is our finish line of our journey, are we going to push others out of the way so we can get there first? Have you ever been to a children's sports day? Yeah. Or, instead of doing this, are we going to do this and say, come on, who's coming with me? Oh, that's kingdom value. How many can you take with you? Yes, we are understandably concerned about the signs of the times. Melvin prayed most beautifully. Thank you. We should be interceding with God, pleading for his mercy on all nations. I'm so grateful to Godfrey and Angela. They keep me on track with international prayer. But let us also keep our eyes fixed on him and what he's placed right in front of us. Right, open your eyes. What's right in front of you? Now, we might not worship in a temple, but we do worship in a building. Yes? I think the pandemic showed us that we don't need a building in order to worship, but it does give us a place to gather. It gives us a place to be in communion with one another. We do not and should not ever worship the building itself, but each one of us is a steward of it. Yes? We should be stewards of what God has given us, aiming to use it to impact our community for Christ by our welcome and by our message, which we are doing. Um, the incident where the people over at the flats, four weeks, five weeks ago now? Coming up five weeks ago really gave us a tremendous opportunity to reach out across the lawn and actually impact people. And I was thrilled to bits. This building can be a place where people feel they can be encouraged and receive spiritual and practical help. We're taking people with us. I was utterly delighted a few weeks ago when one of the users of our building, who is not a Christian, came to my open office door, just down the corridor, she quietly asked me if I was a church member. Yes? And then simply said, I could really do with someone to pray for me. It wasn't a church service. It wasn't anything other than a God moment. And it was a great privilege to pray with her. We are here, linking arms, to pass on the true message of Advent, that Jesus came to demonstrate the amazing love of God, to give his life for all, offer them salvation through his sacrifice, to combat death through his resurrection, and he's coming back. Hallelujah! Well, I'll make a Pentecostal group of you yet. <laughs> Hallelujah! That's more like it. We might not be at the finish line yet, but there is so much we can do while we wait. I'm reminded of the young David 
looking after the sheep. Do you remember? Samuel, the priest prophet, comes to them and declares that David will be the king to a totally disbelieving family. A future. This is what's going to happen. What did he do in the aftermath of this historic proclamation? Goes back to the sheep. He'd been given responsibility to look after them, and until that prophecy was fulfilled, he went back to the day job. We wait. But what do we do while we wait? It took 15 years for him to become king. God molded that young man wonderfully. Who was here last Sunday morning? Do you remember Tim's poem? The second half? One, two, and this is true. Three, four, there's even more. Five, six, it is no trick. Seven, eight, we can hardly wait. Nine, ten, he's coming back again. The last part of the reading from Luke told us to be always on the watch and pray. So, we know he's coming back. What will you do until he does? The glorious thing is that you continue with the day job. But what is that? To actually take as many people as we can with us. This Advent season, let's give people the greatest gift of all. You fortunately won't find it on Amazon. The greatest gift of all is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.